Well, God is love. God is present. God is gracious. God is patient. God is forgiving. These are all truths about the Lord God that uh, are truths that are easy to affirm, I think. Easy to affirm. But tonight, in our final dip into the book of Joshua, we're actually confronting a truth about the Lord God that is far less easy to affirm. In fact, the God we meet in Joshua chapter 7 is the God that many people refuse to believe in. Even many people inside churches refuse to believe in this God. This is not a politically correct God. This is an offensive God. This is an intolerant God. The truth about the Lord God that we encounter tonight is that the Lord is the Lord of anger, an angry God, the God of judgment, the God who hates sin. And I suspect, if we're honest, there are things in our passage, perhaps even as the girls read it for us tonight, that would make every single one of us uncomfortable, confused, disturbed, maybe even a bit cranky. And yet, can I say, we can't dodge this truth about the Lord God. One of the great uh, reasons to, uh, uh, in a preaching program to work your way through chapters of a book is that when you get to a hard chapter like chapter 7, you can't dodge it. There it is, and we ought not to dodge it. This is not a truth about the Lord God that we should dodge. We can struggle with it, and we ought to struggle with it, but we can't dodge it, we can't avoid it. For to do so, to somehow think we can remove the Lord being angry... To do that, to subtract it, would actually subtract from the glory of the Lord, make him less than he really is. And our desire, isn't it, is to know truly the true Lord God. So let's pray and ask him to help us to do just that, to know him truly from this passage. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have you address us tonight. And Father, we pray that we would hear you clearly and that in hearing you we would take you at your word and that we would respond rightly to what you teach us help us to know you truly father in jesus name we pray amen be great to have your bible open at joshua chapter 7 because we're going to work our way fairly carefully and somberly through it and there's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin so point one on your outline is where we're up to. And uh, if you remember last week, thinking back to last week in chapter 6 and the, the victory over Jericho, by the time you get to chapter 7, our passage tonight, it really is a terrible letdown. Chapter 6 was full of victory. Chapter 7 seems only defeat. Chapter 6 seems full of joy. Chapter 7 seems full of fear. It's a great shift. And the reason for the sudden shift is as simple as it is terrible. The Lord's anger has been aroused. Verse 1 of chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. In order to appreciate that verse and understand really what it's saying, we need to dip back into chapter 6. Come with me, if you can, back to chapter 6, back to where Joshua commanded uh, the people 
Uh, on the seventh day, remember they circled the city seven day on the seventh day and after circling the city seven times and just before they shouted, Joshua issued a very important command to the people. We can read about it in verse 16 of chapter 6. Verse 16, the seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. There, Joshua issues a simple, clear command. There is to be no looting for personal gain when the Israelites entered the city of Jericho. It was devoted to the Lord. Nothing was to be taken by anyone for themselves. It was either to be destroyed or else put into the Lord's treasury. A simple, clear command. And even the consequences of disobedience are spelled out, aren't there, in verse 18? Joshua warns them to disobey would bring about your own destruction and indeed would make the whole camp of Israel liable to destruction also. So here in chapter 7, in our passage, the dust of battle has settled. And yet as early as verse 1, it's revealed that Achan, son of Kami, took some stuff from Jericho for himself. He broke the ban. He sinned. And so the Lord's anger burned. Notice that although Achan took the stuff, the narrator here is very clear that the Israelites, plural, acted unfaithfully. Notice in verse 1, he specifies the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You see, within the people of God, sin is contagious. Its stain is shared. There is a corporate responsibility for sin. We think very much as individuals in our society. I take responsibility for me, you take responsibility for you. But it's not that cut and dried in the community of God's people. Achan is clearly guilty of disobedience. He took the stuff, but the consequences of his disobedience spill over into the whole camp of Israel. So it'd be helpful to realize straight up that the same is true, did you know, of this church family? The sin of one has consequences for the rest. We must never ever think of our sin in isolation from our fellowship. We are one body. We share a profound spiritual unity. And unchecked sin in the life of one of our members affects the entire fellowship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he compared it to like yeast working its way through the whole batch of dough. It's the principle, the same principle we see here in Joshua chapter 7. And we need to be clear that what we're reading here in Joshua 7, it's not some interesting history lesson. It's actually highlighting a clear and present danger for us too. It comes as a warning. The Lord takes sin very seriously. The Lord takes sin within his people very seriously. The Lord takes disobedience to his commands very seriously. Achan disobeyed the Lord. The Lord's anger burned. And we see his burning anger 
in the verses that follow. Point two and verse two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. And they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. You read those verses and you think, man, it's a complete reversal of fortunes. Whereas the battle of Jericho was a stunning victory, the battle for Ai here is a stunning defeat. You may remember last time back in chapter 6, before they invaded Jericho, it was the people of Jericho who were melting in fear. Now it's the Israelites who are doing the melting and the fearing. It's this massive reversal of fortune. How could such a thing happen? Well, some people in reading this passage suggest, well, the reason is clear. It's gross self-confidence. Too few men. They only sent 3,000 soldiers when they should have sent many more. Bad strategy, overconfidence, that's the reason. Others others suggest, well, no, it was a lack of prayer. Joshua didn't wait upon the Lord. Flushed with success in Jericho, he pushed on too quickly to take I. He should have prayed. That's the reason for what happened. But neither suggestion is correct. Because you can't read verses 2 to 5 in isolation from verse 1. The terrible military defeat is nothing less than the anger of the Lord in action. Israel failed, not because of too few numbers or lack of prayer. Israel failed because the Lord's anger burned against them. Small number of soldiers wasn't the cause. The Lord's anger was the cause. And their defeat was a sign of his anger. If anything... Perhaps the smaller number of soldiers that were sent were were somehow in the providential kindness of the Lord to to limit casualties. For no matter how many soldiers might have been sent against I, the result would have been the same. Destruction. For the Lord's anger burned against Israel, burned against their disobedience. Now this is an uncomfortable portrait of the Lord, isn't it? But it's a true portrait. Of the Lord. The Lord God is not a God you can cuddle up with. This is a God who you worship with reverence and awe. This is a God, if you like, with teeth. This is a God who is prepared to get his hands dirty. This is the holy God who will not tolerate sin. Because of one man's disobedience, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. But of course, we're the only ones who know that at the moment, aren't we? As the readers of the book, we have the privilege of that narrator's comment in verse 1. However, for those in the midst of everything, especially for Joshua, all they see is a terrible military defeat. And they melted with fear and became like water. But as we read on, we hear the Lord graciously reveal to Joshua the cause of the defeat. And even better than that, graciously offer him the solution to the problem. Point 3, verse 6. 
Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? See, Joshua's in the dark. He's not sure why what's happening has happened. He knows nothing of the sin of Achan. And so he pleads his case before the Lord. Does he overstep the mark with God? Take it too far? I'm not sure. I don't think so. He has a complaint, but he takes his complaint to the Lord rather than making it about the Lord. And that seems to me to be an important difference. He takes his complaint to the Lord rather than making it about the Lord. And many of the Psalms do a similar thing. Take it from the Bible that what matters in life most when things collapse when things seem to go out of control, where we're filled with anguish and fear and confusion and even anger, what matters most is to take it to the Lord and not somewhere else or to someone else. We need to seek our refuge in him and his word. And interestingly, Joshua appeals to the Lord on the basis of a name, the great name of the Lord. Verse 9, he says, The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, They will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? See, Joshua's ultimate concern in all this is the honour of the Lord. And that's right, isn't it? We saw last time how at the end of chapter 6, the fame of the Lord spread throughout the land after the victory of Jericho. We thought about him being worthy of all honour and praise and glory. And that's right because it belongs to him. And Joshua's concern here is, for the great name of the Lord. Because you see, the Lord had staked his reputation on bringing the Israelites into the land. And it seems at this early hurdle that he stumbled. And Joshua can't figure it out. He doesn't understand why. Friends, could I suggest that in all of our prayers, we should always seek the honour of the Lord. It's always a right thing, no matter what the circumstances to ask the Lord to bring honour to his name. You know, we may not know what else to pray in a particular situation. It's always right to ask the Lord, Lord, whatever you do, bring honour to your name. And we may not know exactly what that will look like in terms of precise outcomes. But it is what we seek, isn't it? It's what we seek. We want the Lord to be honoured. We we seek the glory of the Lord, the fame of the Lord. We want it to spread through our church family and our town and our state and our nation and our world. And that's Joshua's desire too. Face down on the ground, in torn clothes, with dust on his head, he seeks the honour of the Lord. And in response, the Lord graciously reveals the cause and the solution of the defeat. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. And now you see Joshua knows what we have known from verse 1. Now he knows the problem. 
And then knowing the problem, Joshua hears what must have been the most solemn and terrifying of warnings. It's at the end of verse 12. The Lord says this to him, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Imagine being Joshua and hearing that. I will not be with you anymore. Surely then his heart heart ought to have melted with fear. Because as we've been seeing through Joshua, the, the presence of the Lord was the source, the foundation of his strength and courage. The very continuation of the Israelite nation depended on the presence of the Lord. And here the Lord threatens to no longer be with them. Whilst this unrepentant evil, this unchecked evil remains among them. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing for the Lord to say to evening church? I will no longer be with you while this unchecked evil remains. Similar to what we hear the Lord Jesus say to the churches, the seven churches of the book of the Revelations. He threatens to remove their lampstand from the place. He threatens to vomit them out of his mouth. The Lord here says to Joshua, I will not be with you anymore unless. And what he commanded to be destroyed must be destroyed. The anger of the Lord, you see, is completely out in the open now. The only way to turn aside his anger is the purging of evil. And that's what the Lord goes on to command. Point four in your outline, verse 13. Go, he says, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. And he who is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord, has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now they are hard verses, aren't they? Sometimes the healing of a disease can be very costly. Sometimes diseased limbs need to be removed. Diseased cells need to be killed. The seriousness of a disease means that serious and urgent and radical action needs to be taken. Cancer cannot be fought with vitamin C tablets. It's too serious for that. It's too dangerous for that. It has to be purged. It has to be destroyed. And so it is, but even more so, with sin in the midst of the people of God. It cannot be tolerated. It cannot be dealt with softly or gently. It's too serious for that. It's too dangerous for that. And we can see that in these terrible commands of the Lord. Here is the way that the holy God deals with sin and disobedience in the presence of his people. The sin must be judged. The sinner must be judged. The guilty one has violated the covenant of the Lord. They have done a disgraceful thing in Israel. And so they, along with all that belongs to him, must be destroyed. Friends, we need to to appreciate the seriousness of sin. The seriousness, the utter, horrible, terrifying seriousness of disobeying the Lord. Because only in the Bible will we hear this truth. Our world will always play it down, dismiss it, laugh at it even. And even in our own hearts, we play it down. We minimize sin. We make excuses for our own sin. We rationalize our own sin. 
Well, the only reason I did that, the only reason I didn't do that was because of we ignore it. It's not that bad, we tell ourselves. We compare ourselves to other people and think, well, I'm not that bad. But it is that bad. Sin is always that bad. Achan, you see, he just took some stuff, a robe, some silver, some gold, and yet he must be destroyed. And that is disturbing, isn't it? It's troubling. It seems so extreme and we wonder, Lord, aren't you overreacting? But no, he's not, you see. The problem is not with the Lord. The problem is with us and our neglect of the seriousness of sin. We think it's a problem because we don't understand the seriousness of sin. We treat it too lightly. We laugh it off. We dismiss it. We minimize it. Achan, he didn't just take some stuff. He disobeyed the Lord. He went against the Lord. He broke the Lord's covenant. It's personal, you see. Sin is personal. It's not just doing a wrong thing. It's personally offending God. And so the Lord is the one who determines the punishment. He determines how sin must be dealt with. And what should have been destroyed back in Jericho must be destroyed now, along with Achan and all that belongs to him. And that's what happens as we keep on reading. In verse 16, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel, the whole of Israel, come before him by tribes. And we've known all along, haven't we, from verse 1, who the guilty person is. But Joshua doesn't. Israel doesn't. And so the process of discovery unfolds. And we ought to feel the tension that must have been in the air as this was occurring. From all the tribes of Israel, Judah is identified and taken forward. From all the clans of Judah, the Zerahites were identified and brought forward. From all the families of the Zerahites clan, Zimri was taken. And all the time, the terrible seriousness of what has occurred and what will occur must have been reinforced and emphasised. And as we read, it ought to be reinforced and emphasised until finally, from the family of Zimri, Achan is identified and taken. Who can imagine what Achan must have been thinking through that whole process? And yet it's not until Joshua confronts him in front of the whole of Israel that he confesses. Verse 20, Achan speaks, It's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan is responsible for the defeat at Ai. Achan is responsible for the deaths of all those soldiers. Achan is, is the one who has brought trouble on the whole of Israel. Achan has willfully contaminated himself with things that were devoted to destruction. And so he too must be destroyed. And so we read the terrible words, the terrible words of verse 25. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. A burning anger. A fierce anger, the anger of the Holy Lord himself. It's poured out. The contamination is dealt with. And then we read, 
the Lord turned from his fierce anger. An anger that was turned away by the destruction of Achan and the devoted things. And if we were to keep on reading into chapter 8, we'd read of the consequences of these events. We'd read of the successful attack on Ai this time, as the Lord was with Joshua and Israel, and, and as he delivered Ai into their hands. But we shouldn't read on into chapter 8 too quickly, should we? We need to pause and ponder the lessons of chapter 7. For Joshua chapter 7 is a starkly, stunningly clear lesson and warning about the seriousness of sin in the life of the people of God. Don't you think? When you think about within the camp of Israel, who could have missed the stark warning of this lesson? Who could have forgotten it? Surely, we think as we read, surely that would have brought an end to any such foolish, arrogant disobedience. Who would have dared to arouse the anger of the Lord after that? There was even a pile of rocks over the remains of Achan as a lasting testimony to the whole lesson, a sign to help their memories. It's there in verse 26. From that time on, we read, that place was called the Valley of Achor, which means a place of trouble. And it was a play on the name of Achan. Pile of rocks was a testimony to the seriousness of sin and the fierceness of the Lord's anger. And surely that was an end of it. Surely there was no more. But no, no, it wasn't an end. And yes, there was more. In fact, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the persistence of disobedience within the people of God. It's a story of the disease of sin remaining and contaminating. And it seems a hopeless story. How could the Lord of anger continue with such a sinful people? The valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, seems to be all they deserve. And yet, you know, after hundreds of years after these events in Joshua, almost out of the blue, really, the Lord speaks again of the valley of Achor. You can find it in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. I'm sorry for not putting it on the outline. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. Don't bother looking it up. There, through the prophet Hosea, the Lord speaks to his persistently disobedient people. And you know what he says? The Lord promises a day in which he will make the valley of Achor, into a door of hope. He promises a day in which he will make the valley of Achor into a door of hope. But what hope could there be for a sinful people before the Lord of righteous anger? Well, none, except that the Lord is not just the Lord of anger, but also the Lord of mercy, which is also a wonderful truth. We've seen that already, haven't we, in Rahab back in chapter 2. We've been reminded of it even in chapter 6, that Rahab was spared. And so in mercy, the Lord promises a day in which his righteous anger against sin would be finally and fully turned away. He promises a day of hope. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you what a day. For it was a day when the Lord himself... The Lord himself, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, 
bore, carried, took the sins of his people and was crushed for our disobedience. The valley of trouble became a door of hope at the cross of Christ. When the righteous anger of the Lord at sin and the gracious mercy of the Lord towards sinners came together, collided, if you like, in the death of the Lord Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, if we want to understand the seriousness of our sin, we need to look to the cross of Christ. For there is the measure of its seriousness. It took nothing less than the death of Jesus himself, the Son of God, to turn away the wrath of the Father. The destruction of Achan in, chapter, in Joshua 7, as terrible as that is, it is nothing compared to the death of Jesus. Achan was guilty. Jesus was innocent. Achan was just a man. Jesus was the Son of God. And yet willingly, Jesus bore the consequences of our sin so as to set us free from sin. Who can imagine what happened that day as the righteous anger of the Lord fell upon his own dear son who in mercy bore it all. And through the risen and ascended Jesus, the Lord has poured out his spirit into the lives of we who belong to Jesus the spirit of Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of obedience. And so given all of that, given all of that, how can it be that we treat, so, treat sin so lightly? How can it be that we treat sin so indifferently? How could it possibly be that we dabble with things that we know would displease the Lord? How could it be that we so casually fail to do the things that we know would please the Lord? The Israelites, they had a pile of rock to remind them of the seriousness of sin. We have the cross of Christ. How can it be that we take sin so lightly in our own lives and in our fellowship here how could that be and yet so often it is isn't it when's the last time that you felt genuine disgust at the persisting sin in your life when's the last time that you genuinely took radical decisive action to rid a sin from your life We who belong to Jesus have crucified our old sinful nature with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit now, and so we must keep in step with him. We put off the old, we put on the new. We put off the sin, we put on obedience, and we look to the cross of Christ. And there we see the anger and the mercy of the Lord. And we are intolerant towards sin. We are intolerant towards sin in our own life and in the life of our fellowship. We hate it. It disgusts us. We flee from it. We are constantly on guard against it. Or at least we ought to be. Listen to the warning of the Apostle Paul 
to the Christians of Galatia. It's from Galatians chapter 6 and I've put it on the bottom of your outline. And I'm positive that the Apostle would want us to hear it as if he was writing it to us in evening church. He writes this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we need to heed the lesson of Achan. Do not be deceived. Sin is no small thing. Its seriousness is writ plain across the cross of Christ. And so in our choosing and our doing and our planning and our desiring and our speaking and our watching and our thinking, in all of that, we must look only to please the Spirit. Do not mock the Lord God with your attitude to sin. For we do not wish to reap destruction, do we? But eternal life, that's what we want to reap. And look, if even now tonight, if the Lord is convicting you of sins in in your life, that you are leaving untouched, do whatever it takes to be rid of them. Tell whoever you need to tell. Do whatever you need to do. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, do not mock God. And if even now the Lord is prompting you to restore a brother or a sister who is caught in sin, will in humility and love answer his call. For together we want to, we want to sow to please the Spirit. We don't want to plough and sow to uh, please the sinful nature. For we know that the Lord will judge his people. And we know that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So brothers and sisters, please heed the lesson of Achan. Cling to the cross of Christ. And in the power of his Holy Spirit, be done with sin. Be done with it. Let's pray. Should take a moment to begin talking with the Lord God perhaps about the things he's raised with you tonight from his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us enough to give us such a serious, somber warning tonight. Father, forgive us, please, for our foolishness when it comes to sin. Forgive us for our pride and thinking somehow we're stronger than we really are. Forgive us, Father, for just the way we minimize sin in our life and talk it down. Father, we're sorry for mocking you. Father, we're sorry for neglecting uh, how much sin hurts you and arouses your anger. Father, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the door of hope that you opened at the cross of Christ. We thank you for calling us through that door, Father. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for giving us new hearts, 
For we want to be people, Father, who please you. We want to be people who sow to please the Spirit. Yet so often, Father, we get entangled in sin. and We get distracted. And we're sorry for that. Refocus us, please, Father. Thank you for, for one another. Father, please make us people who hate sin and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.